Do you believe in fate? Do you believe there is a destiny that your life has? Merriam-Webster defines fate as the will or principle or determining cause by which things in general are believed to come to be as they are or events to happen as they do. We believe and use words like destiny, fate, foreordained, predetermined or predestined to describe a future that is set in stone. It was fate that brought them together. He met his fate. Modern psychologists believe that the belief in fate is a human response, a coping mechanism to make ourselves feel comfortable, to feel secure and safe. Our belief in fate is nothing more than a way to explain the unexplainable. In our modern culture, in entertainment, Fate is seen as something bad. Fate often is described in negative terms when something happens we don't like because we don't have control. In Greek and Roman mythology, there were the wicked sisters called fates. And these three sisters in Greek mythology were the ones that controlled the fate of human beings. But they were fickle and evil. And they would often take bribes to change people's future. It was these goddesses who would determine one's lot in life. Well, in various cultures, whether it be our own or ones around the globe today, at the core of all human culture, is some understanding of the future. Is the future fixed? Or is the future yet to be determined? Are our wills free to determine our own destiny? Or is there some power greater than us that has fixed the future? Do you believe in fate? Is there some divine being that's Moving the events of your life so that you showed up here at this particular day, at this particular time, without really any control of your own? Or are we free to choose our own futures? Are we free to set our destinies? Well, these are hard questions. And hopefully questions that you've thought about. Or at least have come to your mind. And thankfully these are questions that the Bible answers. Now the Bible doesn't give us all the details. But the Bible does use words like predestined. Predetermined. Set in stone. In fact the Bible itself tells us the future. In Revelation chapter 22... 
Things are already complete and done. Well, as we think about this difficult subject, we pray for humility and pray for wisdom and pray for God's grace. Well, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, and this is what Paul is going to talk about this morning in, in reference to our inheritance in Christ. Paul has begun this letter to, in Ephesians with a eulogy to God, a, a praise to God. He's praised the Father, praised the Son, and praising the Spirit. He began by giving praise to God the Father from whom all blessings flow, right? As we sing in the doxology. All blessings flow from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, to the saints in Christ. This is the sum of the the praise that he has. And all that he praises God for in this opening eulogy will be themes that he will work out in the letter. The Father from whom every family has its being. The Son whom died on the cross for our sins, not only bringing about reconciliation with us and God, but reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. And then the Spirit of God, who seals the saints of God and sanctifies us for His glory. We've seen four main praises to God over the last few weeks, and we're on number three. We saw first that we are to praise God for choosing us in Christ. And we reflected on election there. And we'll reflect further on it this morning. Last week we considered praising God for redeeming us in Christ. For our redemption in Christ. And our adoption in Christ. And here we're praising God we'll consider today for our inheritance in Christ. And then next week. Praising God for our security in Christ. So this morning we're going to consider just verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. So I invite you to turn there if you haven't already. It's on page 976 in your pew Bibles. The small numbers are the verse numbers and the larger number is that chapter number. So you just look for the little tiny number 11 and that's where we'll be this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Well, the point of the passage seems to be straightforward. Paul is praising God for our inheritance in Christ. And so as Christians, we should continually praise God for the promise of our inheritance in Christ. God has predestined us to be heirs with Christ so that we would eternally praise Him. In other words, God saves, He elects, He gives an inheritance to so that his name would be praised. Well, this is the theme that we've seen throughout. God works. God saves not merely to save sinners. 
though that is a benefit to us. God saves for his fame, for his namesake. And so the purpose of our time this morning is really to encourage ourselves as Christians to continually offer praise to God for our inheritance, to think about what does that mean in my everyday life as I'm washing the dishes, as I'm changing diapers, as I'm caring for my sick family members, as I am growing old, what does this inheritance mean? And how does it comfort us? How does it give assurance to us? And and Paul outlines in these two verses really two aspects I want us to think about of our inheritance. First, we'll see that God gave you an inheritance through your union with Christ. Now, I've highlighted this union with Christ throughout, and we're going to drill in a little bit deeper into our union with Christ. This is the basis of our inheritance. And then secondly, we'll consider in verses 11 and 12 that God gave us an inheritance to those he predestined. That God gave an inheritance to those he predestined. Well, first, look at verse 11 again with me. We see there that God gave you an inheritance through your union with Christ. Paul begins verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. In who? In Christ. The ending there of verse 11 ties back into verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullest time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Before we jump into this verse a little bit, I want to get into the weeds for a second. I don't often get into the weeds, but but I like I like sometimes to do that. So let's get into the weeds for a minute here. Um, Do you look at the verse again? Look at verse 11. Who is the we? Who is the we? (laughs) Does it refer to Christians or to Jews? Some believe that Paul uses the word we here to refer to himself and his fellow Jewish believers. You'll see the contrasting verse in verse 11. In him, you also. Paul seems to be here in verse 11 and 12 contrasting Jewish Christians with that of Gentile Christians, a theme that will come up later in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. So that really what verse 11 refers to is to the ancient Israelites and God's election of them, God's choice of them to be saved. And this is why Paul refers to them as the first to hope in Christ, that is, The gospel came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Sure, a theme that we all recognize from Romans chapters 1 through 3, that the gospel was first to the Jews and then has been spread to the Gentiles. I'm not so inclined to this position, though it seems reasonable and even biblical. I think it's way too subtle. Paul began this eulogy by praising God for his general blessings. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, look at it, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Paul here began the blessing by referring to the blessings that all Christians receive through their union with Christ. It seems strange, without any real warning or hint, to shift to Jewish Christians. In other words, the context here clearly indicates that Paul is talking about Christians, and nowhere has he hinted that he is now shifted to speaking about Jews. Secondly, it seems reasonable to take that this is referring to Christians and not, not merely to Jews because the parallel structure that I've showed you throughout. So let me show you the structure of this again. In verse 3, Paul begins by giving a general praise to God, by giving a glory to God the Father. Then we see in verses 4 through 6 what God the Father did. He chose us. Then in verse 7, we see it begins with this phrase, In him we have received redemption. In verses 7, Paul shifts to speaking about what we receive through Christ. In him. Now notice the parallel in verse 11 and verse 13. In him you have redemption. Verse 7. Verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. 13. In him, you also. So why the change in verse 13? Perhaps what Paul is doing there is emphasizing the security that is for his readers. He's intensifying his readers' position. There seems to be a logical connection also between adoption and an inheritance. In other words, who gets an inheritance? Children, right? Logically, it seems then that verse 11 and 12 more points to all Christians. And that's why I've taken the position to say that this verse applies to everyone. Paul's not speaking specifically about the Jews. Well, regardless of where you come on this, we can come out of the weeds now and be reminded of this one principle. And I wanted to teach you this principle. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. In other words, let the plain reading be the main uh, teaching point that we grasp when we read the scriptures. And be careful when you're reading commentaries and study Bibles that may get you into the weeds. Well, let's get back on track. God has given us an inheritance through our union with Christ. And what is this inheritance? We, we've heard it referred to several times throughout our service this morning. What, what is our inheritance? Well, I think it's best to take it as general. You know, so often as Christians, we get a little bit too specific. And sometimes I think by our specificity on certain matters that we really don't have any information on, uh, because we're very specific about, you know, heaven is going to be like this, we tend to limit ourselves in what heaven is really like. In other words, it seems that God has told us enough for salvation. In other words, he's given us sufficient information about heaven without going any, any details. And I think it's really intentional. One, seems to be a limitation to the human language to adequately articulate what heaven is like. That is, heaven is so unlike our present experiences that we can't point to some experience and say, yeah, heaven is like this. This is why we don't need to have toddlers telling us what heaven is like. 
Because the Bible has said, this is what heaven is like, and that's enough for you. But it's more than just heaven, our inheritance. It seems to be broadly speaking about all that we receive in Christ. In other words, our inheritance is our union with Christ. As we heard earlier in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's our inheritance, a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In other words, it's not going anywhere. It's not going to rust. It's not going to decay. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to grow old. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's pure. It's complete. It's not subject to corruption. And it's kept in heaven for us. It seems best to take our inheritance as Christ himself. That he is our inheritance. He and he alone is sufficient for us. Sadly, so many, because of their own greed and their own sinfulness, are driven to think that our inheritance in heaven is some sort of financial gain. I don't know in the economy of God that we will be so concerned about mansions in the sky when we have the eternal God before us. I think our focus will be rightly fixed on him. I don't really care where I sleep. I will be with Jesus. You can put me on a cot. I don't care. I'll be with Jesus. So it seems best that our inheritance here is our union with Christ. In other words, what is our inheritance? All that's Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. You've been adopted into the family of God and united with Jesus. And the only reason you have access to anything in heaven, like that you can even get there, is because of Jesus. And when you get there, Jesus says, everything here is mine. And it's yours because you're united to me. As you see in this passage, I've pointed it out and I'll point it out again. Throughout this praise that Paul gives, beginning all the way back up at verse 3, in Christ, verse 4, in Him, on down through there, he emphasizes our union with Christ. We heard it articulated well in our prayer of praise, that we are a new creation in Christ. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The behold, the new has come. Our union in Christ results in a new life. We are new. This is again what Peter pointed to, to our new birth. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. More than that, this is the reason why. We received our inheritance. How did you receive your inheritance? Was it because you earned it? Was it because you deserved it? 
Was it because you merited it? Because you were in the family? I, don't, I know a lot of you here today. Maybe you were left an inheritance by your parents. I, I don't have any hope of any inheritance. Um, I don't know. Many of us may not. But we, we trust and understand that an inheritance comes from a mother and father or a benefactor. It's passed down. You don't give your inheritance to your neighbor. You give it to your children, right? Because you love your children. You want to you bless your children when you're gone. You want to encourage them. And so we might save for retirement. We might have life insurance policies because we want to encourage those, our family, when we're gone. Not necessarily for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, that is what we have in Christ. Our inheritance comes to us through Christ because we're children of God. In all of our hymns today, in our prayers, you heard a consistent theme. Christ, the sure and steady anchor. My hope is built on nothing less. When loud shouts of acclamation proclaim, crown him. Though we suffer today, though our bodies are subject to suffering, though we are subject to decay and disease, we long for our eternal inheritance. This is what keeps our heads up and our souls moving forward. And Paul, on two occasions, reflected on our inheritance as the, as the encouragement in the midst of suffering. We know that Paul suffered tremendously in his life. That he was regularly subject to persecution from the Jews and persecution from the church and persecution from Gentile sinners. But in the midst of great suffering and pain, Paul could say things like this. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. I'm sure this morning when the alarm clock went off, You said, oh Lord, how my outer self is wasting away. (laughs) It is, isn't it? Every time we look in the mirror, another wrinkle, another sagging point, another gray hair. We are wasting away. Our inner self, though, Paul says, is being renewed day by day. God has promised not to redeem our bodies. Our bodies are irredeemable. But he has redeemed our souls. And he has promised us incorruptible soul, incorruptible bodies. Paul would go on to say, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We suffer today. We're discouraged today, but our hope is in our inheritance that we receive through our union with Christ. In Philippians, Paul, reflecting on his own life and his wonderful position that he had, reflecting on all the riches of this world and all the greatness he could have been. You know, if there, if there was anybody that was a, man, what I could have been person, 
You know that, right? Maybe you've thought about, man, you know, what would have been had I taken that job or went to that school or was born into that family or had that house or that car? What would have been, right? We all play that game with ourselves all the time. What would have been? Well, Paul was like that. He was a what would have been. See, Paul was in line to be the next high priest. He was, he, he was an up-and-coming star in the nation of Israel. He was highly educated. He was an Old Testament scholar. He was, as he describes here in Philippians 3, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And listen, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Dude was a blameless man. He was a holier-than-thou man. He was blameless under the law. But, he says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, found in union with Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And here's the key, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, to the upward call of, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, for Paul, he had a singular mind. He could look at, in, the, in the rearview mirror of life. He could look in the rearview mirror and play the what-if game. But for Paul, you couldn't give him all the world I count everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, his eternal inheritance was was greater than his present suffering. And brother and sister, I want to encourage you with that truth this morning. You might be in the midst of horrible suffering. You might not know if the sun is ever going to shine again, but you can be assured of this. That your eternal inheritance in Christ far outweighs this momentary affliction. Though it tarries in the night, we know that joy and relief and mercy and grace, they all come in time. We have received our inheritance only through our union with Christ. And since we are co-heirs with Christ, we have received What is eternally his. The riches of heaven are ours in Christ. Well, the second aspect of our inheritance we see in this text is that God gave an inheritance to those who he predestined. Who receives an inheritance? Who gets in on this? How does one get in on this inheritance? Well, in verse 11 and 12, Paul says to us that it was because we have been predestined to receive it. Look with me again at verse 11. In him we've received or obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, the Christian Standard Bible, I think, helps articulate the causality that I'm pressing on here. Uh, They translate the text this way. In him we have obtained an inheritance because we have been predestined. In other words, the language that Paul is using here is one of causality. We receive an inheritance because we were predestined to be heirs with Christ. Now, as I said two weeks ago, and I'll say again, I know that that can be a scary word and it gets people frightened. I used to, I used to tell people all the time, um, I, I, will, I will call myself a Calvinist if you uh, permit me to define what I mean by Calvinist. Um, because people have some wild ideas in their minds about predestination and election. But here we are going to stick with the scriptures in hopes of staying grounded in the scriptures here in the text. Well, let's look at what he says. Paul describes predestination in two ways in the text. First, its basis, and secondly, its purpose. Predestination is according to God's purpose, counsel, and will. Notice what he says. Because we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That word according to there means basis. It's the, it's the standard by which God uses to predestine somebody. Two weeks ago, reflecting on predestination, we made clear that predestination is not based on foreknowledge. In other words, God does not look down through the corridors of time and see us make some grand and glorious decision for Christ and there say, ah, there's one of mine. I will predestine him. Rather, predestination is solely based on God's will and his purpose and counsel. But the point here that Paul is making is that our inheritance is secured in the will of God. Now, we can get down in the weeds of predestination, but we won't today. The point is clear. Paul isn't meaning to get our minds spinning around trying to think about, well, did God predestine some to salvation and predestine some to hell? Did God do these things? How did he do it? How did he determine it? All the No, no, no. Paul's point is this. Your inheritance is secure because it's tied to the purposes of God. In other words, no one can take your inheritance away because it's secured in God. Now, next week, we'll see that it's secured also sealed by the Holy Spirit. Here, he's grounding our inheritance in the basis of God's predestined will. The sovereignty of God means that God rules and reigns through Christ over his creation. Brothers, sisters, wherever you stand on predestination, let me guarantee at the end of the night, when you lay your head down on your pillow at night, you want to believe in the sovereignty of God. You want to believe that God is in control, that that this world is not given to chaos, but control. 
The sovereignty of God, the Bible teaches us, means that God actually is in control of his creation. It's his creation to control. He can do with it what he pleases to do with his creation. As Paul will argue in Romans 9, he can make vessels for whatever purpose he wants for them. He does it according to his own will. He has total control. And here's where the frightening part comes in. Determination of all. The sovereignty of God means that God not only has control, but he determines the future. This is how Revelation 22 can be written. Brother, sister, if you don't believe in predestination, then you don't believe in Revelation chapter 22 is true. Because how could Revelation chapter 22 be in your Bible if the future is not fixed? If the future is not set in stone? No, God is in control. God is bringing human history to its appointed ends. God is doing all of this for his own glory, as we learned in chapter 1 and verse 5. He does it all for his own glory. And it brings such comfort to us. This is what Paul encourages us with. Probably my favorite passage in all of the Bible, Romans 8. 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's that family adoption language that we're talking about. And those whom he predestined, he called and those whom he called, he justified and those whom he justified, he glorified. All of it is done. It's complete. And Paul can say it's complete because God destined it to be complete. God works, we are told here in this passage. Notice what he says. He works. God works. God does not sit idly by. He doesn't just knock the dominoes over and see how the the pieces might fall. God is not a God. We are not deists. We do not believe that God just sort of kick-started this thing in some big bang or some big event and then kind of step back and say, hey, let's just see what will happen. No. As the ancient divines used to say, that not a single dust particle moves apart from the will and determination of God. Nothing. Not a single molecule in all of the universe has its being, moves, or does anything apart from the will of God. Now, as we think about determination, one clear statement. Nowhere in the Bible does any author of the Bible say that God is behind evil. You'll be hard-pressed to find a text in the Scripture that said that God is the one who determines evil. Christians do not affirm that in the sovereignty of God, that God is the one who is behind evil. As we believe in our statement of faith, that the sovereignty of God does not intervene and interrupt the free will of man. There is divine sovereignty and human responsibility this morning. We are not automatons, we are not robots.
Divine election does not preclude nor remove human responsibility to repent and believe. And let me just prove that to you in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In the context of God's sovereignty in election, notice what Paul says in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth and did what? Believed in him. You see, in the midst of one breath, Paul celebrates divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You believed. You believed. You responded to the gospel. There's human responsibility here. So let's be clear that God's sovereignty does not diminish human responsibility. We are called to repent and believe. The gospel call, the call to repent and believe goes indiscriminately to all people everywhere. We don't just kind of say, I think they look elect, so I'll share the gospel with him. No, no, no. The gospel goes indiscriminately. It goes widely. The call to follow Christ goes to every and so that whosoever will, will believe in him. Brothers and sisters, sometimes the scriptures are hard and weighty and difficult. And I think humility and caution is in order any time you are reflecting and meditating on divine election. I have sat with so many souls that have been wounded because of hyper-Calvinism and wacky Arminianism. And I think it's interesting that the Westminster divines knew exactly what would happen when the church began to teach and reflect on divine sovereignty. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, under the doctrinal heading, chapter 3 of divine election, the divines write, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men Attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding the obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation, their effectual call, be assured of their eternal election. So that this doctrine afford matter of praise, revelation and admiration of God. And of humility, diligence and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. I think it's the enemy's great design to, to distort and twist people's minds about predestination. Because I think predestination is a gift from God, given to his church to encourage us, to comfort us, to give us hope, to know that we are not at the whims of a chaotic cosmos. That what comes around doesn't go around. That karma isn't true. That we're not in some big cycle of life. But that we are being moved forward under the sovereign hand of an all-powerful, all-knowing God who loves us and will care for us no matter how dark it is outside. God is still in control. 
We see secondly here in verse 12 that predestination has a purpose. As in all of God's actions, they have one singular aim in mind. Namely, the glory of God. Look at verse 12. So that. Anytime you see a so that, man, you highlight that and you dig in there and you say, okay, what's God doing? Why is he doing this? God predestines us so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In other words, God predestines that he might be praised. God works for the praise of his glory. God saves for his glory alone. This has been the theme of this. The theme of this entire eulogy is praising God for his work in redemptive history. This is why as Christians we sing songs. Not because we think we're really good at singing. Because I know I'm not. I sing because God's commanded us to sing. Our souls are kind of overwhelmed. We just... Loud burst of acclamation. We reflect on the cross and we just want to burst out in song and sing. We're like David. We, we're so excited about God's redemption. We like take our clothes off and run around naked. What is that, David? Because that's how excited we are when God does something in our lives. We can't help but open our mouths and tell people about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we're going to, wish, we're going to see worship today. I know some of you may, might not watch the Super Bowl, but you're going to see worship. A hundred thousand fools who paid a way too much money to watch some people run around on a field. That's worship. And when they're scoring touchdowns and people are screaming off the, they're praising God. Or they're praising themselves. See, we were created to praise. We were saved to praise. We were predestined to praise. All of life has this aim. Whether you're at the kitchen sink Grumbling over the dishes and those pots that seem to not come clean. Or you're caring for your aging parents. All of it is the praise of him. All of life has this aim. It is the glory of God. The glory of God is merely the sum total of all of God's attributes. In other words, God works to show off his character. And love is not the only attribute of God. He has many. And here we see his omnipotent power on display that we might praise him for it. Why is God praiseworthy? Why is predestination praiseworthy? Well, because of the security that it gives. The safety, the comfort, the assurance. See, we find assurance in so many things. We find comfort in so many things. In this world, there's plenty to find comfort in. Food, entertainment, alcohol, relationships, 
So many things vie for our comfort. But God is saying, I alone should be your comfort. Your union with Christ is sufficient. Christ is the sure and steady anchor. He is. Not you. So regardless of what winds of doubt and discouragement, what, regardless of what trials blow up against us, we are praising God because we trust that everything, every good and perfect gift is from above. Everything. That cancer, that illness, everything is good. Because we believe Romans 8.28. We don't just, you know, tape it on our walls and Instagram cute pictures of Romans 8.28. We believe it's true. That all things work together for good. He didn't say some things. He didn't say the comfortable things. He didn't say the safe things. He said all things. And I don't mean this morning to diminish the suffering that you are currently enduring. The Bible does not minimize suffering. It doesn't have a utopian kind of, you know, it'll be okay, just look past it. No, suffering is real. Pain is real. And it hurts. God knows it hurts. But all things, brother, all things, sister. Work together for the good of him who calls you according to his purposes. We have received our inheritance not by works or merit, but solely based upon God's divine purposes. Because we have been predestined to salvation, the only basis of our inheritance, we trust that it is secure for all of eternity. That no one or no thing Not even ourselves can mess it up. Jesus taught his disciples to lay up treasures in heaven where where moth and rust destroy, where thieves are not to lay up treasures, excuse me, on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where there's no moths. Poor little creatures don't make it to heaven. There's no rust. There's no decay. There's no sickness. No cancer. No thieves to take which is yours. You get what he's saying, right? If your treasure's in heaven, it is secure. It's secure. And secure means secure. Right? It, it, it's fixed. It's finished. It's done. There's nothing left. Friend, what are you investing in today? Where are your treasures? Are they here in this world? Are they of this world? Are they worldly treasures? Are you more invested in this world than the next? Friend, the truth is, the things of this world make poor treasures. Because none of them last. They all wear out. 
You think about the times that you longed for something. Couldn't wait to get that new thing. And the novelty wears off. When you were a child, you thought like a child. You acted like a child. You wanted childly things. But surely today you don't want those childly things. You don't long for the things you once longed. But the novelty's worn off. Friend, the truth is everything in this world wears off. Christians, we should continually praise God for our inheritance. An inheritance that is fixed, an inheritance that is not changing. Our eternal election in Christ does not lead to pride or boasting, but humility. And it reminds us that our inheritance is secure in Christ. Let us, like Moses, count the fleeting pleasures of this world not worth the eternal inheritance we will have in Christ. Let's, like Paul, forget about what is in the rearview mirror of life. Let's forget about the treasures of this world and let us press forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us fix our gaze upon heaven and to Christ's return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, that it is true and it is trustworthy. That we are on a firm foundation. There is no more firm footing than your word. It is true. It will never lie to us. And we can depend our souls upon it. Father, our prayer is that your word would build your church today. We trust that at any moment, Christ could come. And at any moment, you could call us home. Let us have our gaze fixed to that. That our citizenship is in heaven, not in this world. And let us lay up treasures there. Help us to do that, we pray. For your glory and our good in Christ. Amen.